you have a Bible, turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. We're going to be in verses... What verses are we in? We're in verses 13 through 20. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. You can follow along in your Bible or on the screen behind me. Is any of you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is our final sermon in the book of James. During these hot months of the summer, we've been walking through this book verse by verse. This letter that James wrote almost 2,000 years ago to help us live wisely has been our guide. The circumstances of life have changed from the time that James wrote it, but the relevance of the letter continues. Human nature has not. The fight of faith has not, and we need this book. So I hope that as we've studied this book, for those of you who've been here, as we study this book, you felt the relevance in helping to stir us up to persevere to the end, to pursue God. We began this series by looking at how James wants us to have a united heart. He wants us to fight against double-mindedness and have a single-minded, a united devotion to God. He's writing to help us live fully devoted to Christ. And he does this by over and over again, through different circumstances, through different situations, through different commands, drawing us back to pure worship of God that reflects the new nature that we have in Christ. One key theme that we've seen is that the way we act reveals who we are. That's why James is so focused on actions, so focused on what we do, is because what we do reveals who we are. The double-minded person will live in a double-minded way, but the true Christian who has been born of the Spirit, who has received the implanted word by faith, will live like one. James highlights the importance of what we do, and in this letter we've seen the way we suffer reveals who we are. The way we think about our brothers and sisters reveals who we are. The way we treat the vulnerable and the poor, the way that we approach speech in our words, the way we use our money, the way we plan our future, the way we wait upon the Lord, all of this is important because it shows whether or not we've experienced the grace of God in Christ or not. 
James is spurring us on. He's been spurring us on all summer, sometimes with hard words, to be united in your affections for Christ and to live single-mindedly for Jesus. And in these last verses, James is going to show that we need help to do this, that we need help. We need help from God, and we need help from God's people to live in a way that is single-minded. These verses, 13 through 20, are all about dependence. They reveal that we need God and God's people. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And to do that, we're going to look at three words. Praying, healing, and saving. Three words. Praying, healing, and saving. Let's look at our first word, praying. Prayer is clearly the main context for verses 13 through 18. James mentions prayer in every verse in this section. Just just listen to how often it comes up. Again, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Prayer, prayer, prayer prayer. That's the context that James wants us to take away as he winds down his book. But why does he do that? Why does James talk about prayer here? Well, throughout the letter, as we've seen, if you've been with us, we've seen that one of the things James is trying to get us to do is to live as if God's reality were the biggest thing in our universe— that we were recognizing that all of our life is before God. Do you remember when he talked about wisdom? We, we talked about wisdom as the application of the fear of the Lord to every area of life. James wants us to live out our lives before God, taking God into our planning, taking God into our words, taking God into the way that we view other people. What he does is he wants us to recognize that we are dependent upon God. And when you see that, when you see that you need God, the proper response is prayer. Prayer is an expression, ultimately, of our need for God. It's an acknowledgement that we believe that we are truly dependent upon God. Prayer sees that we're not independent, that we don't run our own lives. Independent people don't need to pray. Dependent people pray. Prayer is verbalized dependence. And look at the situations that James says. We just read them. James says these situations should lead to prayer. In verse 13, he calls us to pray when we suffer. In verse 14, James calls us to pray when we're sick. In verse 16, we're called to pray when we've sinned. And for most of us, 
sickness, suffering, sin. Prayer makes sense for that. When we, when we experience evil, pain, and sickness, we, we have categories in our heads that prayer is the right way to respond to these things. I mean, even the world, the non-Christian world, knows, or they would say, that you should pray in these situations. So what happens when a public figure gets diagnosed with cancer or gets a disease? Often people will say, our thoughts and our prayers are with him. At least in my culture, that's what happens. It doesn't matter whether these people are talking completely godless (laughs) for the rest of their lives. When it comes to this sickness, they would say, our thoughts and our prayers go after this person. Or what happens when disaster strikes a particular town, a particular context. On social media, you get those, those prayer emojis, right, that go up. Or those pictures, pray for such and such, get shared. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. People are going to be sharing those all over the place. Disaster leads people to recognize, uh, we, we should go somewhere with this. We should pray. Or someone's in prison for a crime that they've committed. And they ask, would you like to summon a priest to be able to come and, and pray for you? Right? That, that, that person has committed a crime. They recognize this person's going to suffer for it. And, well, we probably need to make sure that if we can, just line up everything so that he's going to be okay. Let's call a priest to come. For the most part, all human beings, whether you're a Christian or not, have a category for prayer during sickness, during suffering, during sin. Because these bad things, these things reveal, probably more than anything else, how powerless we actually are. We know that the best doctors cannot heal every single disease. It doesn't matter if you are at the top of the line in your practice of medicine. You cannot heal every disease. We know, we, 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 we read stories on the news. We look at what's going on in Afghanistan, or we look about what's going on in Haiti with an earthquake, or we look about all this disaster with the pandemic, and we know we, we, can't, we can't do anything about that, ultimately. We feel powerless, and so prayer is a right response. Or when we really think about it, we know uh, I can't do enough good things to make up for the bad things that I've done, or I don't want to get caught for the bad things, so I'm going to go to God and I'm going to pray. The bad things help us see that we are powerless. They reveal our helplessness. And so even the world knows to pray during them. But according to James, it's not just hard times that reveal our dependence upon God. Look at verse 13 again. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Singing praise is a prayer to God. It's a prayer not asking God to do something for us, but it's an acknowledgement that God is the source of this cheerfulness. God is the one who provides this cheerfulness. Praise is acknowledging that we are dependent upon God in good times as well as in bad times. 
When we're cheerful, we don't give ourselves a round of applause. We don't pat ourselves on the back as Christians. When we're cheerful, we go somewhere with that joy. When we look and we see the success, we see the prosperity, we see health and healing, we get that job that we were praying about or that we wanted. We don't go to ourselves and say, man, I must have been great. Well done, Luke. As Christians, we go somewhere with that because we recognize that comes from God. God is the source of it all. James 1, we already saw this, but James 1 says, every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. It's easy to recognize our helplessness in bad times, but do we recognize our helplessness in good times? Do we recognize our dependence not just when things are going wrong for us, but when things are going right for us? Do we see that we need God in good or in bad? The reality is everything good in your life comes from God. He is the source, whether it's the special saving grace that comes in Jesus Christ, or whether it is the common grace of rain, a caring family, protection from the coronavirus. All of that comes from God. So when we find ourselves cheerful, we are no more or less dependent upon God than we find ourselves suffering. And we express this dependence by praise, by taking the blessing that we've received and going up with it and recognizing the source of it and giving God the glory as the giver of every good and perfect gift. You have never been more or less dependent upon God than you are in this moment. As bad as the pandemic has been, it has not increased or decreased our need for God a gram. We are utterly dependent. And James calls for us to recognize that dependence by giving voice, whether it's praise or request. We pray. But James doesn't only want us to recognize our dependence upon God. He also wants us to see that we are dependent upon others as well. And that leads to the next word that we're going to look at. Second, healing. There's two, grape, two grapes, two groups that James talks about in verses 5 through 18. The first are the elders, the elders. So when someone experiences sickness, James says, call the elders of the church. Verse 14, is anyone sick among you? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If you're sick, call the elders, James says. Why do you call those people, though? Why not, why not call a doctor? Well, the Bible doesn't forbid the use of medicine. Some people might look at this and might say, we should have faith, and we're going to call the elders, and we don't need medicine. But the Bible doesn't forbid the use of medicine. In fact, when you read the Bible, and you have a robust theology of creation in man's mandate, man's command from God to exercise dominion, to image God, you realize that modern medicine is a way that we do that. Medicine that can heal the body is a way that we tame creation. And so the Bible actually encourages the use of medicine. 
when you look at it from a whole theological perspective. So what James is not saying here is, if you're sick, don't call a doctor, call the elders. But likely what's happening here is because this person can't go anywhere, the elders come to him to pray over him, likely this was a significant sickness. And they've reached the limit where they're wondering what's going to happen. And so they call the elders to come and pray. Bring the leadership of the church into your experience of sickness to pray on your behalf. James says the elders are to pray anointing the sick person— anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And this is a sign of setting this person apart to receive God's blessing. It's, it's consecrating him. It's, it's what it's doing is the, the oil doesn't have magic properties. The oil doesn't have healing properties. What's happening is this person is symbolically being set apart for prayer. You're anointing them with oil, consecrating them to the Lord, and then you're asking, Lord, heal this person. This person is set apart for the purpose of healing. They're symbolically calling for healing. And the most difficult part of this section, I've been wrestling with this all week, is verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Now some people may take this, and and they may use this to say, if you are sick, and if you have enough faith, you will be healed. If you are sick and you have enough faith, pray in faith. And if you are strong in faith, you will be healed. In fact, there are many pastors who would say, if you're sick, if you are strong in faith, you will be healed. But is that what this text is saying? I don't think so. This is a difficult text, but I don't think that's what it's saying. For one thing, James is not talking to the sick person, the person who's sick and needs to be strong in faith, according to those people. James is talking to the elders of the church. They're the ones who are praying over this person, and the prayer of faith will save this person. They're the ones who are anointing him with oil. And that means that if the statement was a guarantee of healing from the person who is strong in faith, then the pastors who are saying that need to point the finger back on themselves and say, does everyone get healed that you pray for? Because it's not the sick person who's responsible, it's you as an elder. Those preachers who say that often don't, don't take the credit when the healing doesn't happen. They usually shift the blame. So that's one reason. For another reason, we see over and over again that God chooses to withhold healing for his own purposes even when people pray in faith. The most common example of this, the classic example, is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was experiencing sickness, a messenger from Satan, he says, and he pleaded to the Lord that the Lord would take this away, and the Lord didn't take it away, but instead what the Lord promised was his sufficient grace. He says, I'm going to let you experience this, and my grace is going to be sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. So I don't think that verse 15 is a guarantee of healing, that if you just have enough faith, you will be healed. But what is it then? I think what James is talking about here is what we might call the gift of faith. This is what Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 12. This is not the faith that every believer has. 
This is not a faith of depth, as if some people are at 90% faith, some people are at 75% faith, some people are at 50% faith. The gift of faith is a unique gift that the Spirit gives that the Christian can have confidence that something will happen in a way that is special, that God will do a specific thing, and the believer has a unique confidence for it. Already in this letter, James has taught that God is sovereign over sickness and over suffering and success. All of those things fall under his rule. And so we are called to live as Christians and say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or we will do that. And one of the ways that God chooses to carry out his will is through the prayers of his people. So some people may think, if God is sovereign, why should we pray? But what the Bible teaches is that God works through prayers. It's his way to work through prayers. Now, God always, always works through his people's prayers. When his people come and pray in faith, God will always work for good on their behalf. God works all things for those who are in Christ Jesus for good. Sometimes he may answer the prayer. Sometimes he may not answer the prayer. Sometimes he may delay in answering the prayer to refine you and help you to wait and trust upon the Lord. But sometimes, I think what James is talking about is God will give people a special confidence that God is going to answer this. A special assurance that this prayer will be answered in this way. I think that's what James means when he says the prayer of faith. This is supernatural. It comes from the Spirit. I was really helped by the commentator Doug Moo when wrestling with this this past week. He writes this. He says, prayer for healing offered in the confidence that God will answer that prayer does bring healing. So prayer for healing offered in the confidence that God will answer that prayer does bring healing, but only when it is God's will to heal. Only when it is God's will to heal will the faith itself a gift from God be present. So when you have this faith that God will heal, when this supernatural confidence comes in your prayers and you say, I sensing by the Spirit that God will heal you, and I'm praying that he will do it in faith. It is God's will to heal, and God is the one who also gives that prayer of faith, that gift of faith. The prayer of faith itself is a gift from God to accompany the healing. In this way, God provides the prayer and the healing, and in his sovereign prayer, he uses, or his sovereign plan, he uses both to accomplish his purpose. And this should encourage us to pray. When you talk about a text like this, sometimes what you're doing is you're talking about what it's not, and it can make ordinary prayers seem like they're not important or significant. But what this text does is it says God might work in this way, and you will know if God works in this way by coming and praying. Come, call the elders, pray. God will always do something in your prayer. He may give the gift of faith that he will work in this particular way, but we know that for those who are in Christ Jesus, God hears us when we pray. 
He loves us. He delights in us. And he will work. Whether it's healing the person in the moment or whether it's healing the person on the last day. And so we pray. But the elders are not the only group that James talks about in this passage. Look at the second half of verse 15. And if he, the sick person, has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. James writes that there is a chance that the sickness is caused by sin. The word if is really important here. The word if shows that the sickness may or may not be caused by sin. So when we experience sickness, we dare not assume that sin is the root of it. Jesus rebukes his disciples when they see a person who's sick and they say, oh, someone must have sinned for this. Who sinned, this person or his parents, that he was born blind? We dare not assume that sickness is rooted in sin, but we should examine ourselves and ask whether or not this sickness is. Are you holding on to sin in your life? That may or may not be the cause of this, but there is a word for you if you're holding on to sin, and it's repent. And that's what James says here. Confess our sins to one another. That's where the second group comes in. We don't just bring the elders in. We bring believers in. We confess our sins to each other. You see, according to James, we're not just dependent upon God. We're not just dependent upon the elders. We're dependent on each other. That's the whole point in bringing Elijah in, in verses 17 and 18. Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. But the thing that James emphasizes about him is what he shares in common with us all. He was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed and God worked. Elijah was righteous, but he was a righteous man. He had a nature like ours. So we not only need those who we would view as the prophets or the pastors, we can call righteous believers into our lives and confess and pray and God does something. He hears. Some of us can go throughout life operating as if the Christian life is a game of golf rather than a game of football. So in golf, what you're doing is it is you and the course, right? If you hit a bad shot, you can't point to your partner because you have no partner. It's all you. If you're in the sand trap, it's all you. It's you and the course, and you play it by yourself. Some of us, most of us, can be tempted to view the Christian life in that way. Football is completely different. In football, you need your teammates. We can sometimes talk about a football player, I've heard them called footballers, as single-handedly taking over the game. That's a lie. No footballer single-handedly takes over the game. Right? Redeemer Online could put together a football team that would beat Lionel Messi. We would. If it was 11 versus 1, we would beat them every single time. Messi's losing to Redeemer Online. Because in football, you need teammates. 
You need people to pass you the ball and to pass the ball too. You need defenders behind you. You need a goalie to protect the goal. Life is a football game, not golf. The Christian life needs other people. We cannot go at it alone. If you try to go at the Christian life alone, you will lose. You will be like the foolish person running around aimlessly trying to take this ball while the person just casually passes it back and forth to their teammates. One person cannot defeat 11, and the Christian life is never meant to be lived on our own. But some of us are trying. Some of us are struggling with the same sins over and over and over again, and we're hiding it from people. We dare not confess it to other people, whether it's because we think we got this on our own or whether we're afraid of what people will think about us. Some of us are suffering, suffering with sickness, and we're scared to call out people because what will they think about us? Or we think, no, 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 I can figure this out. I have WebMD. I don't need prayer. I can, I can go at this. What's happening is we're cutting ourselves from the grace of God to be healed, either spiritually or physically. We're trusting in our ability to figure out, and we look ridiculous while doing it. Brothers and sisters, Jesus gave us his body to help us live single-mindedly, and we ought to make use of it. Confession is scary. It is. Vulnerability is a risk. Neediness does not look very good, but it brings grace. And as Christians, we know that we are not saved by our performance. We are not saved by doing good things, by being better than those around us. We are saved by the grace of Christ. And that leads to our final word, saving. You see, temporary healing is not the main thing that James is after here. He is chiefly concerned about eternal realities. We see this in verse 19. My brothers, if any one of you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James has shown over and over again that we need the body of Christ to help us persevere with a united heart. And as he closes this letter, he shows why he has written the way that he has. He is trying to bring us back from wandering. Those of us who might be hearing this and think, I'm divided. James is saying, I want you to come back. I want you to come back because there are eternal consequences for not. And he exhorts us to do the same. This month, during the month of August, we're encouraging people to take steps to join the church in membership. Next month, we're going to be preaching a sermon series on the church. One of the strongest arguments for belonging to the church is also one of the reasons, probably one of the main reasons, why people avoid it. In church membership, what we do is we open ourselves up for accountability. We open ourselves up to be accountable to people. We tell people that we are committed to Christ and that we expect to be held to live in a certain way. 
belonging to the church and participating in the body is this, it's the vehicle for the sort of oversight that James talks about. Do you have elders who are watching over you? Do you have members who would pursue you if you are wandering? Is there someone in your life, this is a scary thought, but think about it. If you wandered away from the truth, do you know anyone who would call you back? Do you have a relationship with anyone who is committed to you that if you left Christianity tomorrow, that they would see and they would notice and they would pursue you? If, is there someone in your life that if you were living a double-minded sort of way, if you were saying one thing and living another way, that they know you well enough to tell you about it and to pursue you? You may think that you don't need it, but I can assure you, you do. I've often described this when I've talked to people about church membership, is in church membership, and joining the church, what we're saying is this. I'm in my right mind now, and I want you to pursue me when I go crazy. I'm in my right mind now. We join the church when we think we don't need this. Because if you do need it, then you won't want it. Wandering people often don't want to be brought back. And so we put up boundaries in place now. We make commitments now. We join the body now so that when we're spiritually sick and in love with the world, people will come after us. Brothers and sisters, we are dependent people. The Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. We are dependent upon God. We are dependent upon God's church. And all throughout the book of James, we've seen that there are eternal consequences for the way that we live. In God's grace, he's given his son to save us, his spirit to empower us, his people to walk alongside us, and his word, the book of James, to guide us. May we rely upon God as we finish this book to live in a single-minded devotion to him. Lord, we thank you for the book of James. We thank you that it's been our guide this summer. And Lord, as we leave it for now, we pray, Lord, that you would apply it to our hearts, that we would hear James's call, that you would keep us from sin and stumbling, and that we would pursue you fully. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.